0: Hi you guys, it's Hope, and I wanted to let you know that this is the end of season one. We're moving to a seasonal approach to the podcast, which will give us a couple months in between seasons to, you know, do all the other stuff that we need to do. We are going to be spending the next couple of months planning and preparing, working on our merch, and we will be back in September with season two. In the meantime, we are going to release a summer reading list, basically, things that we have on our list that we may be doing episodes about next season but no guarantees we will be putting that on instagram and on tiktok so it'd be so fun if you read some of the stuff we're going to cover next season either way we will see you back in september we're super excited for season two okay let's get into it Okay, welcome to fascism podcast.
1: Yeah, my name is Jackie. I'm Hope. And we gossip about we're, we're kind of rebranding soon. So I shouldn't jump to it. But we're gossiping about art history today. We like to talk about subcultural aesthetics and
0: meaning of like what we wear and stuff like that. So um, yeah, if you're into it, give it five stars. What's trending with you, Hope? Trending with me is growing pains. I'm like, I've been doing so much emotional work, like being in my feelings and using that to like explore things and just like grow as a person. I've been doing therapy for the last couple of weeks. I don't like really going to therapy. I'm just like,
1: ugh. Is it just because it's work or just because you don't like going to therapy?
0: Um, I just like...
1: Is it your therapist?
0: Well, my therapist right now doesn't get my sense of humor or doesn't enjoy it.
1: She needs to be clapping every time you make a joke.
0: Thank you. But yeah, I don't know. So I just been like doing a lot of that kind of growth and then doing a lot of growth at work like we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Like I'm learning so much and we've talked about how like learning is so hard. It's painful. It's never there's a problem that you have to solve and like. Our friend of the pod, Ryan and I were talking about when you're doing a craft and you have to like go back and redo the stitches or like something goes wrong. You, they were saying like, you need to have like a, a belief in yourself that you can do it in order to keep going. I feel like I've been encountering these problems at work and I'm just like, I just, should I just like move to Hawaii? Like
1: change your name. Yeah.
0: And then I'm like, no, you need to be a person who just like overcomes this challenge, unfortunately. So there's that and then I've been working out so I'm literally just like very sore. So, I'm growing, but growing ain't easy.
1: You got you're growing your muscles and your brain.
0: Yeah, and my like emotional capacity.
1: That's a lot. You should congratulate yourself every night because if I do one of those things, I'm like, "Wow, I'm amazing." And yeah, and
0: then I just get mad at everyone else for not doing it, you know? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> but-
1: "Why isn't everybody doing it?" By the way, that's a very Virgo trait. What? Uh, getting mad that people aren't doing the thing that you want them to do or just like just being like why aren't you doing that it makes sense like it makes so much sense like yeah do I have to do it myself then
0: right right yeah anyway what's trending with you Jackie
1: yeah what's trending for me is gardening I'm really throwing myself into gardening I'm doing this thing with my life because I am so poor and we are living in a like basically a dystopia that I'm like I can't live a life where I don't enjoy it to some degree, because then capitalists win, I don't know you know so I'm like I, I don't clean during the weekday unless I want to because I just like I'm not doing anything during the week while I'm working that I I'm already doing work I'm not gonna do anything else that I don't like doing it's kind of a rule of thumb for me and why I'm probably still single and probably forever will be because I'm like sorry I don't want to do that I'm not going to especially during the weekday it's just not gonna happen the thing being dating that you don't want to do or just like doing the dishes if someone asks me to do the dishes I'd be like sorry it's a weekday I can't do uh-huh. it yeah catch me on Saturday morning not a minute before yeah or I was just like you know I'll leave environments that I'm not feeling during the weekday if I just like very particular about how I spend my time during the week because I want to be doing exactly what I want to be doing when I have the hours to do them and I've been really getting excited about gardening it's so dorky and I was also like you know I feel in my anti-capitalist self and I was just like I got to start propagating more shit. I was like, I should not buy a damn thing. I I bought a lot anyways because I just can't help myself. I like literally to fill anything. I do go to the plant store and just like buy shit. But there's other times where I'm like, no, I can just grow everything myself because it's what you're supposed to do.
0: But if you want instant gratification, you're going to have to pay for that.
1: Yeah. I bought a grapevine. Super excited about it's going to right over my rails. Yeah. I'm super stoked about that one.
0: I want to come see your garden.
1: Yeah, it's coming along. It still hasn't popped the way I need it to. By next time, next summer, it's gonna be so full because you know it takes a while for things to like. Sure. I have one part of it that's kind of like full, like filled out from a couple years of working on it, and then I haven't had the money to buy soil, <laughs> sad, pathetic, and compost to fill like the other half. So I've been like slowly <laughs> doing that. Nice,
0: nice. We're on a monthly <laughs> soil plan. <laughs>
1: really, truly. I also. This week, y'all, I also went around my neighborhood and basically foraged a bunch of roses in people's yards. um, Not with any, like, the actual flower on them, but the stem. And I propagated them all. Yes. So we're going to see. I was just like, yeah, fuck you, rich people. I'm going to get the same plant that you probably paid $40 for. So hopefully that works. Um, I watched, like, eight YouTube videos about it and... I think I got it figured out oh my god I'm so excited I just
0: I just want us to be in like flowy prairie dresses and just be in the, in your flowers
1: me too maybe not the flowy uh, prairie dress part but <laughs> what do you want to be wearing <laughs> I don't know something slutty <laughs> all right I, I literally don't even change my clothes because like when I get home I just start working what do you mean on my garden. Like when I get home from work, if I went to into work, I just am continue working my work clothes, which is professional looking into the garden because I just know if I change, I'll lose the capacity to do it. So, so you're
0: like, you look like a like a secretary in the
1: garden. I do. I look like honestly, I look like a planner. I don't know how to planners dress, but I feel like I look like one. I, I wear a lot of sweaters with collars coming out of it yeah very twee exactly with fancy pants like you know you're just like like cute quirky girl works in her garden yeah exactly that's ready to get dirty and whatever is there um so yeah that's what i would wear (laughs) right now by the way you look like that guy from tool time like the neighbor that (laughs) (laughs) wilson Yeah, because i can only only see your eyes and your mouth is covered because my little spit guard Anyway, so speaking of friends, neighbors, speaking of gardens, speaking of following your passions. Mm, Love it. Okay. Yeah. What are we talking about today? We're picking up from what we did last episode, which is how modern art got to the US. It didn't just come here all natural because people really hated it. So how did it work out? Turns out it was like a handful of people that really made it happen.
0: Last week we talked about John Quinn, who was like, his literally last wish on his deathbed was to bring modern art to the U.S. He was like a lawyer who had like a fucking hard-on for modern art yeah. and like no one else did.
1: Exactly. He was really cutting edge and like his whole mission, it wasn't just to like collect art and like because he liked it, it was to like bring... The future to America. This like he wanted to just bring the movement to the U.S. to showcase the possibilities of art, which I find daring and amusing. And she's horny again. I'm horny for it. Yeah, sorry, got getting a little too crazy <laughs> over here. But yeah, the last thing we left off was Quinn was on his deathbed and he died. <laughs> but that's what you do on your deathbed. Yeah, not only one thing to do
0: once you're <laughs> once you're there.
1: And he didn't really set up a plan. I mean, he set up a plan, but like one of the things that he said before he was like really dead a couple weeks before he died he was just like if my painting something happens to me which he had a real hard time talking about his inevitable death I guess a lot of people do in the U.S. but I just kind of I don't know let's get over it and he's like if anything happens to me and these paintings have to sell it's going to be a slaughter because he knew that the modern art in the U.S. was wouldn't sell and it would go for half maybe less the price than it deserved. And it would go in Europe and it would be dispersed and maybe never seen again ever because people could just, it would just be so cheap. And so he was, that was the concern, like having all this modern art in the US at that time when it wasn't really accepted, for it to be a sell would really like tank the modern art market. Okay, and so he was like, he was on his
0: deathbed. He had like a shit ton of art and he was like, I need to make sure people know how cool this is before
1: I die. Well, yeah, but he was also like... <laughs> looks like I'm going to be dead. I don't think you guys should sell it for the sake of like the movement itself. It would really off because Americans don't get it yet. And it's really about how much things cost at the end of the day. And if modern art is selling for like $8 a painting when it should be like, I don't know, thousands of dollars, people are going to think that's what modern art's worth, you know? Yeah. I don't know how markets work okay obviously there's some math involved and especially art stuff I'm like whatever but he was just freaking out about that I mean not freaking out but he was just kind of like that's what I anticipate happening if it were to happen and Quinn died no one knew what to do with his collection is what we left off and it's 1926 so let's like zoom a little forward Guy Alfred Barr Jr. gets this opportunity to get a glance at the most bizarre private collection that existed in the U.S. at the time. Um, a little bit about did I say Alex? Alfred. Okay good because I had a I, you know how I do that thing where I say the name it's like I sure do <laughs> it's like a constant theme in my life and I think it's coming up more because the podcast is like documenting it and I'm also have to say a bunch of people's names and I'm realizing how often I say it like but anyways Alfred Barr a little bit about him he became basically this aspiring scholar of modern art in the US which at the time no one was doing and he was at Princeton and Harvard I don't really understand how he was doing both but he somehow was doing both or like at least known in the those two circles and he gained traction for his brilliance and quiet radicalism okay and he really was bored by school uh, at this point like toward his like senior year because they weren't teaching anything he was like these classes aren't bringing in modern art the curriculum isn't showing anything of the 20th century we need to be doing that this is lame like what are you guys scared of um and even harvard wasn't even covering any course like didn't have any course in the 20th century art and didn't even have post-impressionist like post-impressionists were just straight up ignored at harvard they didn't even talk about that that was just not even brought up so and he was studying art yeah he was studying all that he was just like dude there's a lot of why aren't we covering like so he's just like this there's just crazy because it's
0: like there isn't the internet so how does he He's like, I know there's modern
1: art. Well, yeah, he he knows there's artists doing stuff, right? Yeah. He has heard, he had gone to, okay. Well, Plus, you know, people are making art. He knows things are happening. There's something going on. But he hadn't seen anything, right? Um, At this point, until he goes to this private collection that is Quinn's collection, essentially. And that's the first time he starts to see this modern art that he had heard about. And it blew his fucking mind. As it does. Do you know how he gets to go to Quinn's house? Well, that's because he died. And they had a memorial collection reveal. And he got this real great opportunity to be a part of that exhibit, I guess. Um, So some people care about Quinn's art and they're making an exhibit. They knew like his collection was something important. Yeah. And they gave at least a memorial exhibit for him. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were like, okay, this is weird, but cool. And it was just all his paintings that he had kept over the time. They hadn't actually done anything with it yet. That was like the first thing to do that they did. He saw – he like saw this when he saw – when he went into see Quinn's collection. He saw what Quinn was actually trying to achieve. I think a lot of people came in and was like, this is just kind of crazy. But he actually understood Quinn's mission. Like he was like, clearly he was trying to do more than just collect art. Like there was a mission to his – like extravagant collection that he had and he was like this is obviously the best of the best too he was like clearly he picked out the best of the best because like we said in the past episode that was not an intention when he or a shift yeah and he was like clearly that's what's going on here (laughs) he just knew so when he got to see what was John Quinn's collection he was blown away like I said and John Quinn back to him he had left kind of a plan for his art, a possible contingency is what he called it, that several hundred paintings and sculptures could go to a public trust provided by his friend Davies, who was really close with and actually kind of like also was part of this modern art collecting and like followed him on a lot of his journeys. If Davies could raise like $250,000, I don't know the inflation right now, but I'm guessing it would be a significant sum. Davies couldn't do it. and And then Davies... Dies soon after that. So that kind of just went. Davies couldn't because he died. Well, Davies just couldn't. And then he died. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> like six months later. Damn. OK. All right. And the way Davies died is kind of interesting. Like he died while like on vacation with his mistress. Oh. And it's like and his, his whole like private life. Like he had a whole second life with his mistress. He had like a kid and like he died. And then his mistress was like, Fuck. Dang. Do I got to tell his wife and kids now? And she did. Mm-hmm. And then, like, there was a cover-up so people wouldn't know about it in the media. Why because. would she
0: tell his wife and kids
1: just because he died? Because he died, like, at her... Oh, because she was like, oh, vacation. I know what happened. Yeah, because she was there. And she was like, they were on vacation together. So she was like, I got to call the family to tell him not only is he dead, that he has a whole second life. Damn, that's an honorable mistress.
0: Yeah, is it? Well, I don't know. I feel like... She stepped up to the plate in that moment. I mean, how shitty would that be to have to call and be like, hey, I
1: so I fuck your husband, or I did. I used to. We have a kid together that you don't know about. <sighs> yeah. I don't know how I'd react. I'd be like, I figured. I mean, I guess you would just know. I don't know. Like, I would assume, what do you think this guy's doing for months on end? I don't know. Like, anyways. So it ended up with a bunch of bank execs after Davies died. You know, how he was in with the financial district. It was some of his buddies. I don't know how this stuff works, but it got in the hands of his buddy bank exec friends. OK. And they didn't know what to fucking do with it because they're not modern art freaks. But luckily, Roche, remember Roche? He was like the poor but cool dude from France that knew everybody. Yeah, yeah. He was visiting in New York, luckily. Not even to just say hi, but he was just like visiting in New York. And Quinn's, you know, ex- I get when ex, like, not widower, but like, you know, the girlfriend he had while he was dying and was by his side called Foster. Remember how she fucked him? Anyways, uh, yeah. Foster called Roche and was like, yo, this is really important. I don't know if they called on each other on the phone or they mailed each other. She got in contact with him. I don't know how they, what they did in the olden days or how they did that, um, but she knew he was in New York and somehow got a hold of him and was like, dude, you need to like save this collection. This you The, the modern art movement is on your shoulders now. Foster called Roche. Roche. Yeah, and was just like seeing that this was all kind of like in the hands of these executives. And she was like, you need to talk to the executives and tell them what's up and tell them the importance of these modern art thing. Like and like how they can't be selling it in the US. And he was like, "Okay." So he did that. And they were like oh thank god you're here (laughs) because they were like kind of freaking out they didn't know what to do and they were like asked him to look at the collection and basically how to disperse it they're like we need some advice essentially what to do and so roche ended up standing in like quinn's apartment for like days just going through his entire collection which by the way was not organized well there was no like Excel sheet – like, the, people did have books back then to collect information and data. He didn't have that, so there, we didn't know actually what – all the paintings he actually had. And, like, how do you even know who they're by? Roche knows all that. That's why he's handy. But, like – because he's very – he's, like, very involved. He helped build this collection with – with him but still like there was just a lot of information that was that did get lost because the lack of documentation but anyways he was going through it and wading through the collection and Roche was still just like in awe of the collection he was just like what did he say He, uh, I didn't write it down but he was just in awe you know we don't need his exact words you know it, what it's like to it was feel clever amazed. it was like French you know he was just like you know it was the shining star It's something like you know epic but he's That's like it heart. is like a bottle of Marche when you open it. It for the first time. That's a great one. Yes, that was good. Anyways, so Roche got an idea while he was going through all this stuff. He was like, "Oh, like, ding ding ding." He said, "No one, no one in the U.S. actually knew the value of modern art." That was like a concern. He knew that. But he also knew one guy, an art connoisseur, who had a deep interest in Picasso specifically and long followed Quinn's exploits. That man's name was Paul Rosenberg. He is a dealer, an art dealer, and Picasso's art dealer and really would fight with Quinn all the time on what to do with Picasso's art and how to bring it to the US. And so when Roche brought this opportunity to buy all the Picassos that Quinn had, Rosenberg was like... I finally get the last word. Wow. I get to decide what to do with these Picassos. <laughs> and he made the deal. They made the deal. It happens. He so he buys the collection? At a very low, low rate. Because Brochet knew that it, otherwise it would, he wanted to keep the collection together. Like yeah. at least the Picassos collections together. Because he knew Picasso was an, an important figure in this modern art. So he's like... If we don't keep them together, they're just going to, it's going to get lost Mm -hmm. in the U.S. So unfortunately, it went out from the U.S. back into Europe to Rosenberg, which is just sad because like a lot of the paintings ended up back in Europe right after Quinn died. and The whole point was to bring them into the U.S. Right. But they were, they were together. At least they
0: were together. (laughs)
1: exactly dude, just imagining packing all those paintings putting them on a boat yeah i guess it was a boat okay so the cream of the crop the rest of the stuff the cream of the crop was sent to europe for an auction so they knew it would be worth something but there were still like 800 paintings because he had a huge fucking collection like we can't Damn, dude. massive so like the rest of it, it's like 800 paintings and statues did go auction in New York. They ended up auctioning in New York. And there was a four-day auction. Um, some Cubist and fut- fut- Futurist work sold as little as $7.50 a piece, which I don't know. Inflation rise, probably $100. Yeah. Really cheap. Roche called the cell a massacre. He was like, wow, this sucks. He said it achieved about 50% of the original prices. And later on in life, I think in like 2003, 2000. Um, an art historian tried to trace like the present location uh, of all the paintings oh, wow. from Quinn's collection and they died too <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a curse it's the Quinn curse yeah. no it said three-fourths of them could not be found like it was just not gonna happen yeah. Yeah. so the massacre did happen uh, back to Alfred Barr Barr found all of this Really fascinating. He was like watching this go down and he was like, this is crazy. This is bizarre how this is working out. And he called Quinn's, uh, he called Quinn the country's most emancipated art collector. What does that mean? He, he was the most free. He was the art collector that didn't live under the the market. So a little bit more about Alex. He was reserved. He was scholar, scholar, scholarly, 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 scholarly. Wow, I'm just not gonna say it right. Spoken in measured paragraphs with a following of excruciating silence. Sounds awful. Did you guess his sign correctly? I did. Okay, wait, wait. wait, You mean give me a little more information? Sure, sure. Very serious in his pursuits. He didn't really date. And Barr saw the cultural shift coming, but he intended to root for the underdog. Aquarius? Yep. Oh, wow. damn dude <laughs> they're so idiosyncratic yeah they really want to not be part of mainstream so desperately and that's all he like that's his whole thing i was all
0: was it was gonna be that or i was gonna guess cancer but that's because my dad is a cancer and he's like and and my brother and they're both very very idiosyncratic
1: i wonder if they have any aquarius in like their moon chart then maybe because i mean yeah OK, so he hadn't really experienced Europe at this, at this time, um, but he knew about modern art. His sole experience in Europe was going on a shoestring with a friend to see all the classics. I'm like, oh, they're just like
0: us. A shoestring?
1: <laughs> Sorry, a shoestring budget. Okay. He was he flew over on his shoestring <laughs> okay. like a magician that he was. They
0: went on a trip to go see art together but they were poor so they were like
1: they were backpacking they took like the spirit airlines of ships (laughs) yeah and they only went to see all the classics they didn't go like it was like when he was younger you know and they probably had like a month to do it i literally was like that's so relatable
0: you mean like us going to palm springs (laughs)
1: Yes, but also like in my 20s, I didn't go to Europe with a friend, but I knew a couple of my friends that did would go to Europe and then like would travel all of Europe. I did do some of that, but like not just a European back trip, you know, trip. I would usually go because school. But anyways, I just feel like that's a, a thing that people do. Uh-huh. You know? Mr. Barr, uh, Alfred Barr, is besties with this guy named Jira Abbotts, who started studying art history because is like, really sold it. He was just like, you got to get into this art history thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, I'll do that. Sure, bro. I uh, sure bro. They became roommates and constant companions. Like, wink, wink. I know. Exactly. You can't say they became roommates without being, like, saying, and history said they were roommates. Right, right.
0: That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, like when you do feminist re-readings of things, you know, you're like, oh, these artifacts of these two guys holding hands are just like, they're just like religious buddies. I remember that being like an archaeological study where like they went in and they were like, oh, yeah, they were pretending these artifacts were just like super good friends, but they're clearly <laughs> fucking gay.
1: <laughs> they're like fucking each other in the asshole. Yeah, the exactly. tattoo. They're like, that's just what buddies do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about him and his best friend as you'll see, they're like really weirdly close and people are like that is weird. Mm-hmm. That is we- I mean that like weird it's being gay is normal in our life, but like I think it is strange to not know what their sexuality if they're a couple or not. That would bother me personally. I'm sorry. I got to know what the fuck they are. I just yeah, do. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Eventually Barr spent his entire academic year in Europe finally getting there ending his understanding of modern art because that was his whole mission was just to go and study modern art and then
0: when he got that he was surprised by what he saw
1: i i think he was struck by it yes definitely um he wanted to witness this movement together with with his bestie abbott and so they did he came out with him he paid uh, they didn't he didn't come out with him but he did go go out to, to europe see some art. is yeah. he that's like I don't know. You're living together. You're spending constant time with each other, and then you're going to Europe. It's just like I would. I would literally be like, "What are you? Like, what's going on? What is your status?" But no one brought it up. Okay, so it, they traveled to Holland, even like to, to witness the distill movement. But he also went to Germany and Russia. That was part of his also his the trip. So what
0: movement? The distill?
1: Distill. It's like fucking. what is Holland Dutch? It's D-E space S-T-I-J-L. Okay. Is that an artist? It's an architectural movement. I'm pretty sure it's the flat roof movement. Correct me if I'm wrong, y'all. That started here. It started in Europe, by the way, by like people in Holland and Germany. The flat roof movement, a.k.a. what we identify as mid-century. And Frank Lloyd Wright saw that and was like, I'm going to show them. And then he started to do it in the U.S. Now we think it's Frank Lloyd Wright's thing. Anyways, he went to Germany and Russia. Like I said, Germany and Russia – and had a thriving modern art community and also like loved to absorb modern art. We're big consumers of modern art as a culture. And Germany was going to this Baja movement and he definitely went there to check it out. Got to hang out with the Baja crew. Baja is it Baja? a Baja. Baja The Baja men. men. And then in Moscow, he got to go to this. Playwriter slash stage artist and this guy <laughs> Mayor Hold I don't know like you know how they set the stage up that's what. Like, what are those people called a set designer set designer and he showed he had like a cubist stage set up oh, cool. which I'm like what I really wish I could see that yeah he saw that you know he went to visit like a bunch of museums of course he went to visit the Museum of Modern Western Painting number no. one in Moscow which oh, helped
0: I love the numerical I know. museum system
1: <laughs> No, just this is number one. There's number two over there, um, which held the largest collection of Picasso and Matisse at the time in the world. And then he started to kind of linger in Russia because he was having such a good time. You know, there was just a lot of shift and Russian during this Russian revolution. Um, And he realized that Modern art really depended on political freedom mm. because during this huge shift, they were really clam- clamping down on modern art stuff. And but before that, during the Russian Revolution, they had the most dynamic art world in in the world. And they just like it was pushing the edge, and which is just kind of interesting because I don't think that of Russia, but definitely was. And then when this revolution happened at this point in like 1926, most of the artists have been exiled or just like gave up art in general in Russia because it was just too dangerous. Damn. And he was basically seeing its sunset on the modern art. And like eventually that museum that he went to closed down soon after he left Russia um, because they locked up all the paintings and made sure that modern art was just never seen again and locked up all the Matisses and Picassos away. And then so he returns to the U.S. summer of 1928 filled with ideas determined to keep studying art and art history and also to teach it and educate about especially like R- Russian avant-garde and
0: I mean I get it every time I come home from a vacation I'm like I'm gonna do Duolingo every morning I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna learn Spanish
1: and I'm gonna like help the art movement there too yeah yeah I totally get it you're like you go to one museum and you're like oh my god have you heard of this thing called art yeah it's crazy we gotta tell everybody anyways He is not loved in the academic world because he is kind of like wanting to teach about modern art and then he's overworked and he never really gets to teach about modern art and they're all kind of like I don't like how you teach and so he's kind of not renewed a contract at his school essentially and he's left in this limbo of like what to do next and one of his mentors was like, NYU would be way more accepting of your ideas. And he somehow got a hold of, I mean, that's somehow he was very smart and well-connected at this point. He secured like a year of a Carnegie Fellowship at NYU and he was really excited about it. But right before he started to transfer over to NYU, Barr got a call from the same friend that suggested NYU, Sachs, and told, or not call, he wrote him, Okay. He wrote him asking if he would like to run a new museum that was going to be entirely divided to modern art. Whoa. The Museum of Modern Art. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the legend. I think that uh, people that know the history of modern art, the Museum of Modern Art, probably have heard before. But it's actually not true. But I think it's a fun little story. And I get why people want to tell it. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. The serendipitous founding of the Museum of Modern Art has long had the quality of Stanley meets Livingstone legend. I don't know what that is, but this is the writer wrote that. In early 1929, with the stock market at a dizzying heights, two New York Society women were wintering in North Africa and the Middle East, respectively. One day in southern Egypt, among the temples and pyramids as one writer has it, or perhaps in the desert sands. She's just uh,
0: guessing. She's like, this is what I know is is in
1: Egypt. Yeah, exactly. As another (laughs) asserts, they ran into each other. Soon, the talk veered from the Nubian tribes to the Metropolitan Museum's persistent allergy to Van Gogh and Matisse. Something they decided had to be done. Then, in the first-class room of the boat back from Europe, One of the two ran into a third friend of theirs, also a committed modernist, who quickly concurred it was time to start a new museum. By the time the three ladies reunited that spring in Manhattan, the project was well under the way, and within six months, the thing was done. Amid the ruins of the ancient world, a home for the newest art was born. And it goes on to say, it's a very seductive tale, but not true. There is three New York friends, um, Lily Bliss, A.B. Alderich Rockefeller, and Mary Sullivan were indeed the driving forces behind one of the most adventurous museum startups, basically, in our generation. God, it would be so much fun to start a museum with you, especially a museum that had never been done. I would be so stoked.
0: Oh, my God. Amazing.
1: Yeah. So Bliss was actually friends with Quinn, and she even had a Picasso and a Cezanne. Cezanne's? She had like a small, very small collection. She wasn't particularly, like, a radical or anything.
0: What's,
1: what, Mary? <laughs> her her last name is Bliss. I'm calling her Bliss. But her first name is Lily. Lily. Yeah,
0: did you say that? Lily Bliss. No, I said Mary. Very cute name. It is a really cute name.
1: And then Sullivan is in her late 40s and is a pioneering art teacher of art history at Pratt and had married Quinn's classmate, but also was following Quinn's art patronage mm-hmm. very closely the whole time. A lot of the the upper class women were very intrigued with modern art because we're more open and more welcoming to that kind of stuff, you guys. Bliss was in her 60s with no heirs, And when she saw John Quinn's collection dissipate the way it did, she was probably like, what's going to happen to mine? Because I don't have any kids either. And I don't know what I'm going to do. So I think that also has something to do with this initiative. And then they had their wealthy and social girly Abby Aldrich Rockefeller. Rockefeller it's it the rockefeller she was married to rock john rockefeller jr because I can't think of any other names and he fucking hated Martin, modern art he just thought it was stupid and he she he didn't allow her to buy any modern art oh my god she was like really into it and he was like too bad so sad you're not bringing any of that shit in this home because he was a billionaire and he could do whatever the fuck he wanted oh man <laughs> like apparently he told pierre matisse who is Matisse's son and an art dealer in New York years later in perfect French that he hated modern art, which I thought was kind of funny. But Damn, dude. Um, What a stink bag. Yeah, he's like, they talk about him, but he's just a grumpy asshole. He's like, no one, not fun to be around. He's like, curmudgeon. I don't know what she sees in him except for the money. And amen to that. That's enough. But like, she ain't getting in it. But with the modern art, she's like, she's like, I wish I could. I can't. Sorry. Can he be good in bed if he like thinks
0: modern art is stupid?
1: Honestly, no. It's kind of how I think about Republicans. I'm like, there's no way that they know a good fingering because I think heterosexuality is like just penis in the vagina. And that's... It's
0: not going to cut it, boys.
1: Anyways, these ladies got together right after like Davies' death because they were close with Davies too. And so when Davies died, they're like, oh shit, what's going to happen to John Quinn's collection? They're kind of all watching this kind of fall apart in front of them. And they got together and were like, we got to... They actually were like, we got to do something. And they agreed. They were like, we got to, I guess, create a modern art museum. And everybody was That's like, the only way. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> so they began this really fucking daunting task. And they reached out to – because they're well-connected. They're not like poor, you know. And they're like part of the art world and part of the wealthy world. And they reached out to a lot of their buddies. And one of them, Saks – they were – okay, so they were like, okay, how are we going to do this? We need to start – they started connecting people and they were starting to, like, think about where they're going to do it and how they're – they were like, "Who's gonna, who knows about modern art, though? Like, we need somebody to run this, to create exhibits, and be a curator. But who knows about it? So they started to reach out to people and just be like, hey, do you have any idea of anybody? And th- at first, they were like, we should get the best, you know, the German exhibitist, like, the, the the person, you know, like, the best of the best, you know? And then they were like, we can't afford that. And, like, they're not going to want to give up. They're probably their very well-established, great museum position. To go help us with this, like, scrappy – Right. Not scrappy because they're rich, but, like – new and scary. I, I probably, it was a little scrappy because just because, really because there were women doing it. Mm. They didn't really have access to the, to the, they had to beg for the money. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it wasn't just there. So, their buddy Sax was like, I, I, I think I got this guy for you. I think I know someone that'd be perfect for this job. And that was Alfred Barr mm. Jr. Wow. And, they met at first, you know, he's weird. He like, talks in paragraphs and then like, is very like, silent for a while. And then, So I think at first our girl, the Rockefeller, was like, he's not a vibe. I don't know. But then she was like, clearly he knows a lot. So he'd be perfect, I guess. He's all we can afford. (laughs) Truly. But he also, she saw that he was really excited about it. Honestly, all it is is eagerness. People can see that they can take advantage of that. You know, when people are eager, they're like, not only they're probably going to be passionate about it, but I don't have to pay them that much, you know, because they're just willing to do this and he accepted the job he was like fuck going to nyu i'm i can't miss this this is too cool wow and they started getting stuff done and they like had they knew that they had to get lended pieces of art at least for the first two years because they couldn't afford anything else they couldn't actually have a like um, a forever collection or anything like that yet because they were so scrappy um, but they like started to look for locations and they found like <laughs> like this place, like rented out this place like the 17th floor or something ridiculous. And they were like getting really excited. But this is 1929. And what happens in 1929? Do you know?
0: The Great Depression. Yeah.
1: They're like really hopeful. And then like 10 days before the stock market plummeted, their museum opened. <laughs> Yeah. And something that was actually really cool about their, like, because Barr was running it and he was very, very into this stuff, he wanted to make sure that people understood the art and the story of the art. So, something that he did was back in the day, they did the salon style where they would do it like to the ceiling, like all the paintings from the ceiling to the bottom of the floor, which I love aesthetically, but it's actually not a good way to look at art. We've gone to museums that are like that before. Like the fry? Yeah. And it's it's not a, a good way to examine or understand the linear process of things or like the connection between things. I think it's like you kind of
0: it's yeah. more to get like a general feeling. Yeah.
1: It's a vibe. It is. And he was like, no, we're going to do it at eye level and one painting at a time. Basically, he created the, the way that we know how we move in museums now, at least in the U.S. Yeah. So the, the market was dying, um, plummeting. And he, they're like, oh, fuck. Um, but luckily, they're only going on loans anyways. And then as this was happening, all this kind of stuff was happening at once. Barr actually fell in love with a woman named Daisy Scholarly. But, like, went by Margaret and Marge eventually. That's what he nicknamed her. Um, she's an Italian woman, a little spicy. But she was, like, a really acclaimed, like, art historian, had studied at Smith, I believe. Um, and she even got a job offer to be the art director at Smith's museum, art museum. And then she would have been the first woman to ever be an art director of a wow. museum. She turned it down because she wanted to support fucking Bar with this modern art museum shit. Yeah, Damn, Honestly, infuriating. When I read that, I was just like, why? Yeah, you guys could have divided and
0: conquered.
1: Really could have. But she got really, they got married in six months of knowing each other. And mm-hmm. yeah, she turned it down. Literally, she, and she was 29 at the time. So she was kind of an old hag for her day. Just kind of all interesting to me. And... When they got married they got married on a Tuesday in Paris which I think is weird. They're very unconventional and again not very intimate but love like very devout to each other. For the rest of their lives. But it's just like. It's giving. Not having sex. Okay. And it got married on a Tuesday. Like who gets married on a Tuesday? Didn't Anna Wintour
0: get married on like a Tuesday? Like on Wednesday or
1: something. Yeah. Exactly. People like Anna fucking Wintour. Like. Yeah, that's crazy. And like f- five people were there. It was like no big deal. Which fine. I like small weddings. But it is just kind of like. You could have done it on a Friday. I don't know. Like what's. Why the Tuesday? It is a
0: little odd.
1: It is a little odd. I don't know if anybody had a full-time job though. So everybody probably was just free at They're all the like, times. They yeah, exactly. And then, like, right afterwards, Barr, like, went to a museum with his buddies and, like, Marge did some other work. They just went on. They just continued working, essentially. It was like, they... did yeah. like,
0: all right, see you later.
1: Yeah, they were like, got to go. We got to keep... M- museum of Modern Art was, like, the number one goal. It was, like, Barr's passion. But, like, there was no room for having a rendezvous even on your wedding day. You know, there was just none of that. They didn't ever have sex for the first time can you believe it they almost, i'm just kidding oh <laughs> i was like wait a second um they're probably boning before they had got married i wonder if they were like cool like that or if they even boned because i honestly don't know if alfred barr is actually straight like the more i read about him i'm still like what was was like she a devoted hag you know and she was her beard he was yeah. a, you know because like i don't know Anyways, after he was offered this position, he also, also, like, was like, okay, I got a great guy that could be my deputy director. And before he had married Daisy, he was actually living with his deputy director, which is? Uh, am I supposed to know the name already? Yeah. The one, the friend that he went to Europe? Abbott. Oh, right, Abbott. They were okay. living together, which is weird, because he was director and his best friend was deputy director, and they were living together. That's just, that is weird. Like, again, yeah, weird. he's your deputy yeah, exactly. And eventually, some drama happens. Basically, Barr really wants to get Picasso, Picasso pieces at this museum, and they make a whole mission of it. Since they're getting married in Paris, they go like go. They try to go see Picasso. Picasso is like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. During this time, though, Matisse was also having an exhibit in Europe, and it was doing really fucking well. And Alfred went back. Alfred and Marge went back to the U.S. Being like, we got Picasso to agree to with this. We're gonna. It's gonna go through. And then. Picasso got jealous of Matisse's kind of exhibit doing so well. So Picasso was like, no, I'm not fucking doing that anymore. Actually, I'm going to focus on painting a, a bunch of stuff and like not talk to anybody because I'm going to do this because I want to beat Matisse. I don't want to go to fucking U.S. right now.
0: I mean, I get it. I'm like, if one more person invites me on vacation, I'm never going to become <laughs> a famous artist.
1: He wasn't going to go to the U.S., but his paintings were. He can't, doesn't even speak English. Picasso speaks zero English. Anyways, but... He's also just a flake in general, but it's a pattern that comes up. Like, there's many times that Alfred Barr tries to get Picasso works at the museum and, like... The Museum of Modern Art? Yeah, the Museum of Modern Art, and continuously, like, things... It's just, like, Picasso being flaky, essentially,
0: yeah w- earlier when jackie got here she was telling me that she guessed four characters of this book right yeah like and you've, you you have two a little bit. yeah she told me the qual like a few qualities of picasso and i guessed that he was a scorpio
1: he's a scorpio for sure yeah he's mysterious he's abusive it's, which because scorpio men not women they're like cool and interesting sure. But Scorpio men are, like, fuckboys. boys. Dude, hard. I dated
0: two Scorpio men, and it was intense. Exactly. And that is Picasso. He's
1: intense. He's also seclusive. Like, he doesn't get out a lot. Like, he would just disappear from, like, the world for a while and, like, be with his lover and then, like, have two other lovers and then, like,
0: be like, I don't, you know, just being a fuckboy. boy. Dude, my high school boyfriend would call me. I had, like, a big group of gal pals, and he, like, didn't have a lot of friends at the time or something, and he would call me, and I'd be, out, like, out on a Friday with my girlfriends, and he would, like start a fight and like I'd end up like in the other room like fighting with him he that was, is a Picasso move he'd basically just be mad that I was like you know
1: having a good having time a good time that is Picasso Dude, 100%. yeah and then he's like you don't get it you don't know me like that's his vibe you know so he's annoying he's a Scorpio man he's just like purely a Scorpio man if you knew a Scorpio man he's the Scorpio man okay so this is Zodiac it's real I don't know what else to tell you okay so Alpha Bar is like anticipating this Picasso and he like – he really collapses when it doesn't work out. Like he was really – he wanted like one of the exhibits to be Picasso and showing off the modern art movement. And Picasso was like the center of all this, even though I don't know if he should have been. But whatever, he is for some reason. He's like the – he's the standout star besides Matisse, right? And then somehow his wife, Marge, goes out to Paris and like runs into Matisse, And it's just like, hey, Picasso dropped out. Do you want to do this – u.s exhibit and modern art and he's like because he's more business minded or like he's just like very punctual kind of like things things through and he's like this is a good idea i do want to reach a market in the u.s like Mm. seems like a good idea it's and it's interesting and it's fun it's like kind of dangerous so he did it um and he produced like the art and like gave it to, lended it to the Museum of Modern Art. So it was like, woo, like things worked out. But like still Alfred Barr was like really disappointed that the Picasso didn't, like the whole Picasso thing didn't work out. What do you think Matisse's sign is?
0: Okay, so he, give me like a rundown of, of his personality traits.
1: I mean, he's obviously creative and a genius, but he's very reliable. <laughs> he's very, like, he'll say he'll do a certain amount of paintings, and then he'll do it. Right. Um, Usually on time, preferably, you know. I feel like he's a Virgo by the way you're telling me. He's Virgo-esque. Capricorn? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, he has his fuckboy tendencies, but he was pretty – like, he got divorced, but he wasn't, like, on the level of Picasso by any means. Um, he's kind of boring, dude, honestly. Okay. So, our friend is really devastated by this, like, not happening, working out, and he kind of collapses. And then right afterwards, his buddy – wants his face – What's his name? His maybe gay lover, but we're not quite sure. Abbott was like, hey, I got an offer for a director position uh, for a museum. What is that museum, you ask? You didn't ask when I'm asking. And the Smith Museum of Art. The same one that his wife declined. Damn, dude. Like a year earlier. Oh, my God. Is he going to take it? He took it. <gasps> and he laughed. And Alfred is destroyed because they're probably dating at least emotionally
0: oh my god forget alfred the wife
1: i know right i would have been like excuse me i don't know i would have been mad at myself i don't know who else to be mad about yeah so there goes his friend i mean like his friend was like i gotta do this and i think from reading the book i think he was honestly annoyed with alfred bar being married he didn't like being the third person and he like he was his best friend for a long time and then like suddenly there's this new person and I think he was like, if I can choose not to be the third person, I'm going to do that. Interesting. So. But it's just crazy that he got the same position that his wife got, got offered. I don't know. That's cunning. That's some bitchy shit. If I've ever heard of some, he it, basically Alfred is near a, a breakdown. Essentially, he's just like too hard on himself. He's like, "My Picasso is my best friend's god," and he's just like he like literally is on the verge of just. He looks like shit. Everybody's like, "Dude, you look like shit." Okay, like people are writing about it, being like, "I saw Alfred, and he is not looking good." Oh
0: my god, not getting modern art a good image.
1: So the doctors were like, he went to some doctors, and they're like you need a year of rest. And so he was like, I guess. Okay. So he talked to the ladies and he's like, I need to take off this year. I can't do the museum for a year. I think it's going to be good for us. And he's like, but how are you going to pay me? You got to pay me. So they're like, we're like, fuck, we're kind of not like making a lot right now because it's like 1930 at this point, you know, during the great depression. And so they're like, uh, we can pay you half the salary, which is still crazy in the U.S. market. So he got to take a year off on a, probably it's a pretty tight budget to recover. What? With half his salary. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is luxurious. That's what I think, but I think that should be just a standard that we practice, but – Yeah. It is luxurious to me. Like, God, it would be so nice to just be like, I am on the verge of a breakdown. I feel like so many people are on the verge of breakdown. I
0: mean, he's on the verge of a breakdown because his friend got a new job and because he didn't
1: get (laughs) the paintings he wanted. Yeah, he's really into modern art. He's putting a lot of pressure on himself. This is the first museum of modern art and he's running the exhibit. He has a vision. Now is not the time to take a year off. I know, but he does. But, you know, he does it in Europe. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's like <laughs> kind of like a working vacation. Exactly. He's like, well, if I'm going to do this, I got to do it in Europe. So Marge is already there because they don't actually spend a lot of time together. She's like in Europe a lot of the time. Again, suspicious. Very but... like Lee Miller-esque. Yeah, exactly. They definitely know each other. I'm like, because they mentioned Roland Pierre or whatever. Penrose. Yeah in the book well right. yeah and she was she knew i mean yeah they all know each other like she never gets mentioned but i'm like where like i just i would love to see everybody in the same room right anyways they go out and they're like okay well let's go to europe and they found themselves during that time in a violent upheaval of art and politics that was the year things started to really fucking take off in europe alfred and marge uh went to stay in germany to see this booming modern art world that they were really excited, both and in- obviously very enthusiastic about it. And while there, the unthinkable happens and Hitler forced through this Enabling Act, basically allowing him to-, to rule Germany without a parliament. So like while they were there, this is kind of like the shift that was happening. Hitler was taking over. Damn. He wasn't even a majority, but he just like made it happen.
0: Yeah, the new laws that I'm in charge
1: yeah. And like people like love to listen to him. And Alfred and, and Marge would like hear him talk and know his thing, but they were just not into it. And everything kind of started to speed up after that, like with the political shift. They went to go see a few museums that they love and they had so much time on their hands. They would they would go back to see collections that they really liked. They were like, well, we're here. We should go back. And they, which I would so do. Yeah. Um, but they like really like this one exhibit and they were excited to go back to just see it again. And they went and the museum was completely shut down. They had just visited it like two weeks before and the paintings were all taken down and the rooms would be or were completely empty. Oh my God. And Alfred talked to the dude and he was just like, they're telling us to take it all down. Like I will get in trouble if I have this up. And they, modern art shows had essentially just been condemned outright by a bunch of Nazi papers. And if you have control of the media, you have control of other people. So they were condemning it in the media, modern art being like a disgrace, like you can't... And they even said the phrase, like one politician was like, we got to keep Germany art, like Germany... But the phrasing was, bring German art back to Germany. What is the... What is the Trump phrase? Like, make Germany German again? Make Make German German art again. Okay. Make... Make make art German again. Yeah, essentially. Which was like trying to get rid of modern art. Um, and Alfred, his one true love, modern art, he was so, he was fucking pissed. He sees this and he's like, nah, brah, that's, you started a fight with me now. Like, me and Hitler in our, in our own war. They even met, like, this guy named Richard Dockery, who who I'm probably saying that wrong, but moving on, young architect doing very interesting stuff, you know, as they do. And he was summoned to the city building inspector to talk about a house he had designed. And the project was already halfway finished. The inspector said the the flat roof that he was had designed needed to be replaced by a sloping tectonic gable. So they were trying to make sure that culturally it wasn't shifting in any capacity. Wow. The flat roof was a characteristic of this new architecture, and they were like, "No, nah, this is shutting in town." Barbs we were, we're witnessing an all-out attack on modern art, essentially. Oh, make art in Germany, German again. I wrote it down.
0: Oh my god, that was a real, that was like their real slogan. Yeah. Oh my god.
1: Alfred and Marja Marge would stay to see the first Jewish persecution, the first yellow buttons, the first department stores closed down.
0: I feel like those don't shouldn't be on the same list
1: what do you <laughs> fair but i think it all kind of happened in that like trajectory and yeah for real and she there's a letter that she wrote and she said we became ferociously anti-fascist at that moment
0: yeah once they shut down the nordstroms it was
1: like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah they were like i've had enough no it was really the modern art but alfred began drafting a series of articles about nazi cultural programs um because he thought americans really need to be warned about like what the fuck was going on not good for his health you know he's like trying to and recover and the uh, war starting
0: and you're supposed to be relaxing
1: i know he got literally in the worst like place to be seeing how modern art was disappearing in front of his eyes he sent an urgent and internal moment mo i never can say this word mo memorandum Memora- oh yeah i don't know how to say that word memorandum? memorandum yeah memorandum too many m's yeah i think you're right whatever hope just said for the trustees of the MoMA, he was, like, saying, like, we have not actually fulfilled our, like, number one thing that we actually promised ourselves we'd do. Like, our, our fundamental purpose, which was to form a representative collection of modern paintings. And they hadn't really done that yet. And they hadn't, like, built the collection. They had only gotten lint. And so he was trying – this was his way of trying to save modern art in Europe because he saw it just being dwindling away and being like stocked up or like burned or whatever. And he was like, oh, but this is an opportunity and we need to do it now because it's disappearing, coming crashing down. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, people are at risk, but also the arts at risk, which is just kind of fascinating how fascist regimes Okay, well, actually, Italians were really still into modern art, even when they were fascists. But I just think that's because that doesn't count because they're Italians. Okay. (laughs) But most fascist regimes are, like, very conservative. And and also, I don't think it's a coincidence that Hitler was a painter and he hated modern art.
0: Wow. I didn't know he was a painter.
1: You didn't know that? He was a failed painter, they love to say. He did classical drawings and, like, did copies, as they do, um, and didn't make it as an artist. So Alfred chronicled the destruction of modern culture in Germany, though he also worried about about its future in the United States. If modern art was disappearing from German museums, which had long been the most active in the world in the collecting new art, it would be even harder in the future to rely on Europe for his own shows. Along with his articles on the Nazi art campaigns, he began writing an urgent internal, like I said, the momentum where he's like, we need to figure this out. I'm I guess sorry. that's what memo is short for. Oh. No wonder we shortened it. Yeah, we're like, we're not saying that. We need, Yeah, the memos are supposed to be short. The, the right. word itself can't be long. Yeah, come on. With his usual fondness for military strategy, he came with a dramatic analogy. I didn't, this is kind of thrown on me. I was like, oh, I didn't know Alfred Barr was really into military strategy, but that's just thrown in there. He said the permanent collection, he wrote, may be thought of as a torpedo moving through time. It snows the ever advancing present It's tell the ever receding past to illustrate what he meant. He included several diagrams of his idolized missile in which the crucial ancestors of advanced modernism were at the back and the engine compartment and the newest, most radical work, the art of Picasso and Matisse and the followers in Paris and the warhead at the front. Yeah, interesting. And he was disconcerting, even violent way to think about modern art. But the speeding pistol captured many of the qualities that Barr viewed as essential to stay relevant. Not only did the museum need to tell the story of modern art from its origins up to the present, it had to tell it in a propulsive way that could absorb and project potent new developments as it went he was just like we gotta show it so it could also keep the movement going essentially and inspire people to keep this alive and where were they gonna show it at the modern museum at the yeah at the moma um, and so they got it from germany well i'm getting there he's like okay. writing to them being like something needs to be done give me your money so i can start fucking buying shit i guess and but this was his way of selling it <laughs> once a torpedo drawing. <laughs> As the torpedo rushed forward in time, its narrowing stern could leave all but the most important classic modern artworks in its wake, while its warhead could absorb ever newer in- innovations. Soon nicknamed the Torpedo Report, Barr's memo, when it was finished that fall would become a legendary at the museum. So he's like trying to get like a collection of things to get out of Europe to save modern art essentially. But what was less noted about this memo was the circumstance in which Barr had written the report. In devising his art torpedo, he could not have avoided thinking about the new threat to modern art he had witnessed in Nazi Germany. And he did not specify where the torpedo was heading. (laughs) but it was clear that its intended target was the american public by showing that even the most radical new art was propelled by forces that had been unleashed in both european and non-european art going back centuries the museum's art torpedo would as barr put it destroy or weaken the prejudice of the uneducated visitor against non-naturalist kinds of art
0: wait so the torpedo is a metaphor right there's no real torpedo (laughs)
1: yeah but it was famous people were like wow this illustration like people were like talking about it because he's trying to he's he's seeing it happen right Right. he's the only one in Europe and he's using this like war metaphor
0: to be like there's a a torpedo that's headed for modern art
1: yeah and um for the U.S. Uh and it's modern art but it's also Germany (laughs) you know what I mean like that's what he's trying to say okay Um,
0: because everyone's already afraid of Germany so he's kind of like yeah
1: U.S. isn't really thinking about Germany at this point okay they're like, whatever, Hillary, this is over there. Like, mm-hmm. Frank, Franklin D. Roosevelt had just, like, gotten elected I th- or, like, started, what's it called, the new deal and stuff. Like, people were just recovering from the financial crisis. They didn't really, World War II wasn't in there, wasn't there. But he was, like, seeing it and he was like, this is an urgent thing. So he used the t- torpedo metaphor. By the summer of 1933, modern art had become a war for Barr. He was on his way to figure out how the fuck he was going to get this done. So Rosenberg, <laughs> the art dealer that got all of Picasso's work mm-hmm. was also a Jewish man, FYI. He got a hold of all the Picasso stuff um, from Quinn's collection, and they connected because Barr really wanted a Picasso piece. Uh-huh. And Rosenberg hadn't really worked with him before, but he's like, okay, well, we need to talk, dude. And he sold him his mission about bringing the stuff to the U.S., and rosenberg knowing what he had seen in world war one was like i'm not gonna make the same mistakes that i made last time um or like he just saw stuff coming and he was just like i gotta make sure that i'm setting up my painter paintings to be put somewhere safe yeah and they also knew that like european artists were in danger that's something else like everybody knew but also particularly Barr and his wife at the time forever she never stopped being his wife i don't know why i said at the time But while they're staying their stay in Nazi Germany, they met this artist, Kurt Schwitzer and several other – I'm probably saying that wrong um, – several mis- museum directors and coordinators and just people that do museum stuff mm-hmm. looking for an out. They are like, okay, it's getting really fucking dicey and – They're literally scared for their life. (sighs) So Barr's kind of stressed out about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Hard times. And I don't know. He takes it upon his responsibility to be like, I guess I'm the guy that's going to save everybody's ass here. Except he's not the only person that does that. But he definitely ends up saving a bunch, like like helping people come into the US, particularly some artists and architects and he also like does this deal and he gets a lot of paintings that contribute to the modern museum of art during this time purely to save this art so he had six weeks at this point the museum was going to open a show called cubanism and abstract art with nearly 400 objects in every medium the exhibit would be the largest of bar's career and it was also his most intellectually challenging one since the museum's founding he had engaged with like single artist's and a lot of countries and regions of Pacific kinds of work, like mural paintings or architecture or industrial design. He loved that Baja, the Baja bows. Mm-hmm. But he had never tried to present the main plot lines of 20th century modern art itself. This is so fascinating to me. And the successive schools and movements and the underlying forces that shaped them. And, and he wanted to create a visual. I sent it to you last night. Oh, yeah. And so, and no museum had actually ever really attempted to make these connections of modern art in the history of modern art. And he was like, well, this is going to be a big cartography feat. A big cartography feat? Yeah, because he's creating a, a visual map right. of the history with yeah. a timeline. Mm-hmm. So it's cartography. I'm like,
0: damn, he's been having exhibits and they've never talked about the history of modern art
1: no i think his collections have been just kind of like here here's some cool things like there's a lot of storylines that you can pull from right like you can say like this is Ms. matisse's era of this time period because he was influenced because of this thing you know yeah, yeah. you can do certain you can decide what your, your narrative is for any exhibit right this one he was like i'm gonna i'm facing the challenge of not only europe being on fucking fire i feel like i have to do this justice to showcase like and really educate people on modern art in general and why modern art's important to us now. Mm. So he creates this timeline, a visual timeline that we will post on Instagram maybe that really showcases how all these movements are connected. Mm-hmm. Cuz there's various movements of modern art. There's fauvism, there's futurism, there's cubism, there's surrealism, there's I just feel a like bunch. We're also
0: like really used to seeing graphics like that. Right. And like they, I'm sure, were like way less likely than.
1: Well, this is like the time where things are still first, you know. So I'm sure in Europe they were like, oh, we already know because we are the creators of art on an international level, or at least people think they are. So they didn't have to explain the history of arts to their people visiting their museums. Maybe. I don't know. But in the U.S., it was definitely there was a need to explain why modern art was an, an important aspect of art. So he took it upon himself to showcase that. Damn, that's a
0: tall order. Yeah. And it's like every time I try to explain to people why fashion is important and I just end up getting (laughs) frustrated.
1: Yeah. You need to start drawing like he did a a map, a visual map, just explaining and just feeling like, I can't just look. Yeah. For Barr, it was also a project that had acquired Special Urgency, one result of failure to do his Picasso show back in the day. Remember how it didn't work out? And it hadn't worked out twice at this point. Like, he tried to hook up Rosenberg for the Picasso stuff, and that didn't work out, whatever. And then, again, I mean, mean, later on, it won't work out, as you'll see, but whatever. He's upset about it. He's still bummed that he didn't get this Picasso works. Yeah, dude. Wow. And the museum had never really engaged with the birth and development of Cubist art because they have not a Picasso. But this was an exhibit about Cubism. And despite that, he regarded it as a central importance to the course of 20th century painting like Picasso works. The museum had also neglected Russian constructivism, Italian futurist and French surrealist, among other movements. For most Americans... Juan Gris's newsprint collages and Casimir Revelich's floating white squares were no more approachable in 1935 1940- than they have been in 1929. So, despite the influence of Cubist ideas on American painters, even knowledgeable critics regarded Cubism as a discarded aberration that had little bearing on art of recent years. And this was his effort to awaken the public. And he created this wildly ambitious show. Cubism and abstract art, and it would present the Cubist movement not as an aberration but as an evolving force at the center of one of two main currents in the modern art. The second, to follow in the fall of 1937, would be devoted to the other opposing current, surrealism, Dada, and what Barr liked to call fantastic art. Mm-hmm. Taken together, the shows would offer a clear sequential narrative, a demystifying cause, and effect relationship to explain the course of advanced art and why it mattered
0: wow and so in the cubism one is picasso in it
1: no so
0: there's other cubists
1: yeah i mean he got like some important cubists um and it did explain stuff but yeah he's i think he's doing it kind of out of despite the fact that he can't get picasso to the u.s it's just not happening for him all because quinn's fucking collection got dispersed and like sold to rosenberg and one last thing he knew that the shows would be controversial And the material was going to be difficult. And since they would be writing a history where none had existed, he also knew that both shows would depend on the work of one artist in particular, Picasso. Like I said. What he didn't anticipate was that he would face an entirely new obstacle to getting access to Picasso's work. One that had nothing to do with an art market at all. Picasso was going through a divorce. Oh, he's like, no one talked to me. (laughs) Exactly. He was like really sad. And he stopped painting because essentially... A divorce in France I don't know she would get half his paintings there's like so he was trying to get a divorce to be with his mistress who was pregnant and he, they ended up getting just like not divorced but they're in this limbo being separated and he couldn't touch his art because she would get half of it or something And Rosenberg, his dealer, was, like, feeling the pressure, too. And then so Picasso was like, I'm not doing art for a year, I guess. And, like, so he didn't – not only could he not live with his mistress and deal with the birth of his new baby mama, which, fuck him anyways, but he was also in this, like, unfortunate event where he couldn't even touch his art. So, Yeah, so that sucked. But regardless, Marge and and Barr were like, well, we obviously got to go to Europe again to, like, see if we can talk to Picasso doesn't work out.
0: they were like, we're just gonna hop on a boat and just like go see go go try to say hey.
1: Yeah, it probably took a week to get there. I'm like, does that cut into your six weeks? I don't know. Like what's your six? What do you mean by six weeks? I just another side note. Marge ran into Picasso at one point while the war was going on. And like Marge is like still really, really upset about everybody's like they're very anti-fascist still, by the way. They're still like trying to make sure the art's coming to the U.S. to save it and trying to save people in this process. They haven't forgot their mission of like like saving modern art, essentially. Mm -hmm. And Marge saw Picasso at the floor, which is where all the surrealists hang out of, including our Pim Rose dude. Like a bunch of people. We got to go to the floor. Anyways, it's, yeah. a, it's a cafe where people would hang out a lot. And he was there. And as the war was raging on, Picasso was like really just indifferent. And Marge talked to him and he was just like, whatever. And she was like, dude, Picasso kind of sucks. But like he was such good friends with Lee. It's like, what did she see in him? I don't. His, her her son did write that. So he might have a like, you know how parents tell stories about their friends or it's not like the full truth of the experience. Yeah, is? but she
0: wasn't telling him, you know, he was reading her diaries and shit. Oh, really? Yeah. He knew like nothing about her until he found all of her shit in the attic one day. I bet he,
1: she said some shit about Picasso. He's just like, I mean, maybe he she didn't just, know
0: Picasso. Like there's like a photo of him with
1: Picasso. So I don't know. Like he doesn't he sounds like a bummer sometimes. But OK, here's the thing. This is what happens. Okay, a little bit about Alfred Amarga or Marge. Picasso's disengagement presented an awkward reality. In his own museum work, Barr instinctively shared Picasso's apolitical outlook. Just as Picasso's art seemed to exist outside the realm of current events, Barr had long viewed the story of modern painting as a continual evolving interplay of styles and forms that unfolded largely on its own terms. So it existed outside of like politics. It lived in its own vacuum. Yet Barr was acutely aware of the extent to which modern art had been drawn into the defining ideological battles of his times. Obviously, there's a reaction to modern art. So he's like, you can't deny that it's political now. Not only had he witnessed firsthand the ways that democratic freedoms and advanced modernism had been squelched in Stalin's Russia and Hitler's Germany, he was um, immersed in the fraught debates of Depression-era America, including on such matters on social housing and even race relations. In 1935, Barr joined a group of prominent New Yorkers who sponsored an important anti-lynching exhibit organized by the NAACP. And two years later, while traveling with Marja and the Jim Crow South, he insisted on sitting in the non-white section of the bus. I'm not going to give you too much props for that. That's the thing. I, I was thinking about this the other day because I think sometimes it- – People
0: think about the social advancements we've made as like linear and they're like people are not racist today and they used to be racist. They're like, but it's like there have been people on the like better side of history. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's been allies like
1: you're you're not a
0: good woke person just because you were born today. Like,
1: yeah, he was really understanding of the importance of modern art being like anti-fascist just purely because it was its own thing. So he was a little disappointed in Picasso. He was just like, dude, what's your deal? Anyways, suddenly, though, there was an attack on a city of Guerviccia. I'm not doing that fucking city's name. Where is it? Spain. That left Picasso furious. He was really upset. A bunch of people died. Only left like two homes. I think he was familiar with the town. He finally picked up his sketching pad and finally started to draw. Wow. And he drew, like, something woke up in him when this happened. It like when
0: he made, like, Guernica or something?
1: Yes. Okay. You said it right! Wow. The emotional dam that protected him from the war finally had broke, essentially. Mm, he's like, oh! I do hate war. No. And then he started painting and drawing with a ferociousness that people were like, Whoa dude, are you you're pissed? Like he's like, Ugh. like just like grunting, I guess. War. What is it good <laughs> for? Yeah, he's like <laughs> nothing. He's playing that in the background. He's like, I know this is twenty years in the future, but it's it's my vibe. It's my vibe. Um and during that time he started painting. What was the painting that you just called it? Guernica yes that was a big deal um he was like i'm gonna get in trouble for this but i don't give a fuck i'm gonna paint this painting hell yeah and he did 10 days of non-stop sketching and he drew his first full design on the canvas by the way all the surrealists and all his friends were really fucking anti-fascist and were part of the war just so like people will have some idea and that's when they started mentioning roland pimrose and talking about his activism ish, whatever you want to call it, and, like, how it was bizarre that Picasso was just so whatever about things, because yeah. huh. his group of friends were very involved. Anyways, and then after 10 days of non-stop sketching, he drew his first full design on the canvas. Non-stop? He didn't sleep, you think? Of course, like, naps. I don't... They said non-stop. This just seems interesting. Well, you know, they're writing a book, if that yeah. makes it sound... Very exciting. Yeah, you're right. And then in subsequent phases, the central motifs of an immense, dark, claustrophobic tableau began to emerge, restricted to the same unremitting gray, black, and white colors of the newspaper photo- photographs that had inspired him. In the end, it didn't matter what bombs a city looked like. The human violence ran deeper. The military caste, as Picasso would soon put it in a rare public statement, had sunk Spain in an ocean of pain and death. To convey the horror, he needed the full range of his art: Goya, Athenian tragedy, medieval Catalan art, bullfighting, crucifixion iconograph, Cupidus collage, surrealist biomorphism, and the endless transposed Minotaur series. I didn't. I haven't seen this piece of art. I need to now. I really do. Guernica? Yeah.
0: I remember learning about it in school. Really? Yeah, like in Spanish
1: class. That's so cool because, okay, this ends up being Barr's mission to bring this fucking piece to the US. Oh, interesting. He's like, okay, finally Picasso's cool. He's like, what do
0: Americans love? war <laughs> <This laughs> Nobody's I- gonna be their entry
1: right <laughs> he just thought it was really awesome that there was a painting that represented the emotional pain of war because yeah. he was being political and he was like finally there's this modern art that's also speaking on politics at that time it's like it's a re it's not it's not outside it's not a vacuum it's a reaction yeah. to what's going on and i mean
0: and modern art was already but it's like people didn't know how to read it
1: right it wasn't a clear reaction to violence it was just a reaction to art within the art world right but i mean
0: like dadaism was a reaction to war too you know i mean they are it's like it was that art was also political
1: well yeah for sure for sure
0: i think he but people didn't it's like they didn't see it because it wasn't a literal depiction of war yeah
1: exactly and it wasn't picasso who I don't – I still don't I – th- I think he just had some good dealers like Rosenberg and the other guy, Colonel or whatever his name was, that just like let him do whatever the fuck he wanted. He was just a recluse literally uh, sometimes, and but somehow became one, one of the most famous people. It's kind of – I don't get it. He's not that good. I'm sorry. I'm going to say it. I mean, he's not that good. He's really good. He's not my favorite. And he's not my favorite. And I just, like, kind of confused on why he was picked as the best Cubist. I guess because he's so prolific. I don't know
0: much Cubism anyway, so.
1: Well, he has his best friend that was also a Cubist and right. that went to war. I think, honestly, because people went to war and he didn't. Right. Is why he got the kind of the name recognition that he did. Yeah. Anyways. So his his mistress, Dora, watched and photographed this whole thing, um, providing a riveting start-to-finish record of the painting's creation. Oh. Her images capture not only Picasso's developing vision, but the extraordinary pace at which he executed it. Damn, dude. She's like making content for him, like filming a TikTok. Dude, I would really like to see her pictures of this. Yeah. And of course, this is something that, you know, our boy Barr is horny for. He's like, you got picture, you got historical moments of that. He loves linear process. Mm-hmm. He, he likes to sh- reveal behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he was like, when he heard about that, he was like, oh my God, you gotta get me that anyways each day the canvas with its contorted limbs and faces and animals in agony evolved in 35 days it was finished for any painter it would have been a breakneck project for a middle-aged artist who two years earlier had almost ceased painting altogether it was an astonishing athletic feat of self-reinvention okay okay we're giving him a lot of credit here.
0: An athletic feat. I mean, I guess. It's An like- astonishing
1: athletic feat because he's old and he hadn't paid in like two years.
0: Yeah. And he did it for 30 days straight.
1: I guess it is. I mean, I hope he had good shoes.
0: Yeah. I mean, the ergonomics, like, right. you know, you hope he had a
1: good back, good chair. He's small. So I don't know. Those people are kind of like limber and can do things. You know small you- people? Shorter people. Yeah. <laughs> like, like a jockey. Like, he doesn't have to hunch over as much is what I assume. Got it. Got it. He's, like, already closer to the ground. <laughs> yeah, everything's right at eye level. Yeah. <laughs> um, He's having insulated himself from the events in Spain for so long, Picasso now let his pain- paintbrush explode with distress, anguish, terror, and an insurment pain, massacres, and finally peace found in death. Peace found in death. Wow. Things are getting bad, okay? And Barr hears about this piece. Uh, he provides it he showed like the piece goes to spain they showcase it people fucking hate it he knew he was gonna get backlash from it um but our our boy alfred barr jr fucking loved the idea and he talked to rosenberg his dealer and was like let me take it to the u.s because people especially you know hitler and all them are gonna get word of this and want to destroy it and back in the u.s modern museum of art was about to open the building that they had built I think the one that we still have today, I'm not quite sure, but it was their first like they had they had hired an architect, they were they were going forward with this, they had their it was about to be finished, and it opened and it was a big deal and it was showing off and it showed off like the cubist kind of artwork. But the highlight though was FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt, for those that don't know what that means, but just, what are you doing? Living on a rock, um, gave his like fifteen minute radio speech endorsing the Museum of Modern Art. Wow. And, and he's not like a, a modern art dude, but, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was a big museum fan, and I think she was like, there's this cool museum, so you please mention it.
0: Wow.
1: And the speech, you know, was significant because I think, I mean, I know, I'm reading this book, FDR was clearly stating, like, the state of modern art in Europe as, like, kind of a... a Showcasing that he would support people bringing in modern art from Europe, but also like hope artists come to the US. Like they're showing that they're opening wow. their doors, and America essentially could be a refuge for this new arts of the 20th century.
0: Dang! So I mean, I want to
1: read that speech. Yeah, and, like, it's 15 minutes. Yeah, we could probably listen to it. I don't, he gave a lot of those. They're called like fireside chats or something. Okay, on September 11th, 1939, 10 days after the Nazi invaded Poland eight days after France and Britain had entered the war, four days after French divisions began their land offense in the Saarland, three days after Hitler annexed a large part of Polish territory into the Third Reich, two days after the British War Cabinet announced that it expected the war to last three years or more, Barr finally cabled Um, This guy saying 70 European loans here, including Picasso's, Rosenberg's calories, 30 more possibly unattainable. And he added carrying no war insurance. This is while he's in um, Europe. And this isn't everything that the modern museum of art had wanted. But the improbable and despite the outbreak of war, the core components of the show, the main shipment of works from Picasso and Rosenberg were in place and in New York. So after all this. They essentially went back to, again to Europe to get this. What is, what is the name of it? Guernica. And a bunch of other Picasso pieces. And they finally get it. Because he's, he's like, I'm fucking doing this thing. And I'm going to create a Picasso exhibit. And that was like the whole deal. And he makes a deal with Rosenberg. He helps Rosenberg get out of France and Germany. He's a Jewish guy and it was like this whole thing. There was a lot of people at this border and I think Spain and they ended up being like the front of like exiting Europe and there was a bunch of refugees that I left Germany and Rosenberg was one of these people at this border and – As Spain uh, had a dictator at the time and he was like do not let anybody fucking in they are not allowed to leave and this one guy that was at the border front that was like the main like the I don't know deputy sheriff whatever was like running the show Got really sick and laid down for, like, 10 days. He's like, I can't handle the stress. And then woke up and was like, I'm signing everybody's fucking passport. No. I'm doing this. He went rogue and signed everybody. He s- stayed night and day until everybody went no through. No way. So a bunch Dude, of people.
0: Dude, that's what. Ha- that's how you wake up after a good nap. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're like, everyone is going come to go come in. And Rosenberg was part of that. But he got lucky. And, like, oh. this got rogue guy. And they got to the, like, they got to leave and get on a boat before news had hit, like, all the way to the edge of, of Spain or whatever, because, I mean, like, the news was traveling that this guy went rogue and, like, not to trust people's passports if it had his name on it, but they were the last kind of group before it hit that information, which also, that is how you do shit. You We need people to go rogue more often. Right. Yeah, you can't wait till the institutions,
0: like, sign off on what you're what you want to do.
1: Yeah. Essentially, our boy collects all this modern art and is like, I got to get back over. And he was still fighting this battle of getting all this art. And he set out in mid-September to capture these like remaining works from afar. He faced daunting new challenges already within hours of British and French declarations of war. A German U-boat had torpedoed the British ocean liner. Like the ship Marja had taken only a few days earlier. It was a civilian vessel bound for North America of its 1,418 passengers and crew, 117 were dead. These were the same shipping lanes that any additional artworks coming to New York would have would transverse, and it made it even harder to persuade lenders to take that risk. Paris itself was like on lockdown, which is a lot of where the French stuff, and it 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 was a scary time. At the end of September, the French dealer Pierre Lo. Loeb, who owns several important cubist collages Barr had been hoping to get cabled impossible to, impossible to send picasso paintings gallery closed i can't do anything a week later jacqueline Albinaire informed him that much of much as she wanted her husband's mem- memory associated with the show the prospect of losing one of picasso's precious portraits of the poet to a german submarine was too much to contemplate He's he's just basically having to barter with people and like be like, I really I, if you want this to happen, it's going to happen. There is a slight risk if it, it might not make it to the U.S. But if you want to save it, you just got to send it to me now. And he really was unrelenting about this mission. Um, and he got a bunch of Picassos. And then, like I said, he finally got the Gornet, Gornico um, and with this like Spanish refugee relief campaign had been, uh, this painting group had been shown briefly at several venues across the country to raise money for the victims of Franco. For Barr, when he got this, it felt like it was an enormous coup to have Guernica, but the fundraising tour offered scant reassurance about American readiness for Picasso. He toured
0: the painting around?
1: Guernica was toured around Europe for a while to raise money, and it was finally kind of getting its international notoriety. Yeah. Because at first people were like, I think it wasn't people. I think it was like, it was the powers that be were like, get this fucking out of here. And so touring it uh, was a radical act. And, and also people went to go see it out of like spite and would pay money to go see it to raise money purely for certain victims of a war, which is kind of just cute and sweet, I guess, you know, um, not cute, but anyways, it started to get like acclaim and like, Bar somehow gets his hands on it, essentially, with his buddy Rosenberg's help. And it arrived at the museum. So, yay. Yay! <laughs> and when it arrived, the Chicago Herald and examiner, examiner announced it with the headline, Bolsheviks Art Controlled by the Hands of Moscow. What? Remember the Bolsheviks were, like, the hardcore, li- like, yeah. Marxists? Doesn't make any sense, but they're just pissed that this artwork is coming in. Wow. And then, you know, the anti-modernist camp resurfacing yet again, given that Guernica had been created a response to a bombing by the fascist regime that was self-trying to silence modern art. Barr realized he would have to work even harder to shape a new American understanding of the artist. So thus far, he created this exhibit called Picasso in the 40 years, Uh, Picasso and his works of 40 years. And it was a big deal. And a lot of work, but this was the shining piece of it, the center of it. So he finally gets his Picassos and he gets
0: to do, he does a whole thing on it.
1: Yeah. And it's huge. This exhibit is very popular. Changes all of America's view on modernism, essentially. And as a result, the most important show of his four-decade career was being assembled, Picasso was completely unreachable. (laughs) Because so Barr was like,
0: dude, you want to like talk about this? Yeah. Do you want me to hang it like this or like this?
1: Yeah. And of course, Picasso disappeared again and just he didn't get in touch with him. So he was like, cool, I guess I'm going to go on with the show without you. Um, Picasso, 40 years of his art, open at the Museum of Modern Art on a cool Tuesday evening in mid-November. The previous day, one French and four British ships were sunk by Germany. The New York Times reported that the bulk of the German army is the West ready to take the initiative. In Manhattan, though, events in Europe seem far away. When we tune off the war broadcast, um, a contributor of Harper Bazaar wrote, we tune on in on Alex Templeton, the blind pianist, with his malicious musical takeoff. Fefez Monet, Carlo is open again. Then there's a new matinee with the two crack Latin bands, voodoo gyrations and drum Porter porters, blah, 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 blah. Things are happening mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. And yet for the some 7,000 guests who attended the show's opening night, whoa, the shadow of the world conflict hung over much of what they experienced, starting with the museum itself. Designed by American architects, the new building boldly proclaims the arrival of the international style in Midtown Manhattan, yet the hori- horizontal factory-like that structure, a vivid departure from the city's upthrusting Art Deco style, had been directly inspired by the Baja, um, long since proscribed by the Nazi regime. Uh, proscribed, proscribed, basically hated by the Nazi regime. Okay, yeah. and D, the two, so they were live. They were living in a piece of art that was essentially anti-fascist, as it as. It was. From the art to the architecture. Yeah. And I mean, so the war was just looming in that way that it was just ever present of like how modern art was so involved with World War II because it was a representation of everything that Germany and Russia hated. And indeed, the two most prominent Baja architect- architects, Grupus and Mies, had recently arrived in the United States after fleeing the Third Reich. And if Barr had gotten his way, he would have gotten them to design the architecture, but they didn't. As much as the building suggested an emerging new style, it also reflected a Europe that was rapidly disappearing. But it was the museum's contents that captured this tension most strongly. After passing through the building's signature revolving doors, the guests were greeted by three rooms of some of the most astonishing paintings created since the century began. A great many of them brought over from France just weeks earlier, giant standing nudes reinterpreted through the burly, squat volumes of West African sculpture... Violins and guitars that seem to disappear entirely into a profusion of interesting lines and planes. Comic stock characters from Burque opera rendered with the exquisite realism of Velasquez. Okay, names. Okay. Fr- um, Veles- it's like Spanish. Velasquez? I don't know. Look them up. I don't know. Try to figure it out. <laughs> or the mind bending geometries of the three dimensional jigsaw puzzle. Copulent bathers transposed into a fog of curves and eyes and breasts and shrieking contoured shapes of animals, women, and children filling a huge wall with primal expressions of terror. Here was modern art at its most concentrated and clamorous rescued in the nick of time from impending doom. Yeah. Wow. So that's how he got uh, all that modern art and it was a huge hit and in It changed the altar of how we look at modern art. Literally, that exhibit in itself ended up traveling all over the U.S. People clamored to see it. People would go like it was just like a a huge shift. I know people were becoming more and more open to it. I think just purely because it was being saved from Europe. Right. They're like, we love that this is. It's It's uh, anti-Germany. Yeah,
0: anti-Germany. We like that FDR was like, this is a cool museum.
1: Yeah. I'm going to read this quote by one of the people that talks about it. Despite uh, his remoteness, one of uh, this radio talker asked, uh, uh, despite his remoteness and mystery, Pablo Picasso had become a household name and even more unexpectedly a potent symbol of American values. Defiantly staying in Paris during the darkest days of Vichy, he was regarded as a hero of the anti-fascist resistance, a man who American soldiers were dying to meet. At the same time, having aroused suspicion for years, his exuberantly modern work was suddenly being embraced by hundreds of thousands of people across the country from the traditional art centers of the Northeast to the cities in the upper Midwest, from college towns in the Deep South to farm communities in the Central Valley. Like, it was just traveling everywhere. When uh, uh, this guy asked this woman who was an art critic about this, McCausland is her last name, to account for this curious phenomenon... She began to talk about the influence of a single institution in New York. The past 15 years have been seen a tremendous change in aesthetic of values just because the education, essentially propaganda, call it what you will, carried on by the Museum of Modern Art. But what does that have to do with Picasso? She responds, everything. Mic drop. <laughs> so yeah, it's all really because of Alfred Barr and <laughs> And he ended up saving a lot of artists and architects lives uh, by helping them come in as well as modern art. Wow. And then what did modern museum art do to thank him? They said, hey, you haven't been writing enough. (laughs) Like, "Uh, we're going to demote you. No way. (laughs) After like spending like 15 years there.
0: Whoa. What did he get demoted to? Like deputy? Checking tickets or something? I think.
1: Well, and then he got half his salary.
0: Man, he's like, that's what I was getting when I was depressed in Europe.
1: <laughs> yeah, but well, that's kind of just mean um, how they they fucked over my boy at the time. Rosenberg, the guy, the art dealer that got barely got out, that was like friends with Picasso um, and like essentially like helped um, our boy bar get a bunch of Picassos begrudgingly because he actually didn't really want to do it, but he did it. Lived in New York for the rest of his days and didn't ever want to come back because he was so pissed off about Europe being the way it had just totally turned its back on him um, being a Jewish man. And he didn't really ever keep in contact with Picasso because Picasso is such a fucking flake. He would try to contact him and Picasso just wouldn't answer. So, you know, that relationship dissolved, but he was still there in New York. Um, I love this.
0: This is like, Kind of like those things you don't like at the end of movies where it's like you see the characters like Alfie got fired, like demoted. And like you see him downsizing to like a smaller apartment. Yeah. Rosenberg is like walking through the streets of New York. He's like clearly a local at that point. Yeah.
1: And one of my favorite little tidbits about this is like how Matisse and Picasso were like kind of enemies. (laughs) Like they were competitors um, of each other. And I think that's kind of funny. And Matisse ends up getting a divorce and his son, Pierre Matisse, is like living in New York and like, I don't know, I think that's cute and quirky and he, Matisse's son like hangs out with Barr and all the other gays. <laughs> By the way, Alfred Barr's whole friend group was all gay men. Oh, really?
0: Yeah, I mean, he was definitely gay.
1: Right? Yeah,
0: there's no way he wasn't.
1: Okay, sound off your comments on if he was gay or not. Happy Pride.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, love you. I love
1: you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.